Hello. Good morning. Hi, Dan. How are you? Oh, I'm super duper duper. Good. Yeah, it is a beautiful morning. You're just resting a little bit, catching up? A little bit, yeah. We'll see how this goes. There's a, um, inexplicably, a pretty big dump truck towing a backhoe parked out in front of the house, and they appear to be, like, working to offload the backhoe. Mm-hmm. But I know all of the little screwed up projects that my neighbors are getting into, and I cannot imagine who on this block has use of a backhoe right now. Plus, they could have just borrowed yours, right? Well, the thing is, the only person that does have use of a backhoe is me. <laughs> but Maybe they're doing a you a solid and, then, you, you know, think? getting it for you. Uh, you think the neighborhood all went in? On a backhoe and said, "Yeah, let's just do this. Let's, let's just let's do this help him out. Guy. He needs help. Let's help him." Ah, what a bunch of nice people! Mm, I don't think that's the case, though. Well, I know you probably have some topics prepared, but oh, yeah. but as per usual, uh, a lot of people, and I by a lot I mean more than one, mm. have asked me to broach this subject with you. Mm. It seems that the tooth is gone again. Oh yes. And you've it's not like you've been shy about the fact that it's gone. You've well, posted Instagram shy. pictures about it and uh, special reveals and things like that. Yeah. Uh so the the question is out there and it it is my duty to ask mm. what's going on. Well, you know at this stage of adulthood teeth come and go, Dan. Yeah. You can't get precious about them. You'll notice I have I do have a little bit of a lisp that that results from having not just the missing front tooth, but there's a little bit of a sharp edge in there right oh. now. That I, I can't keep my tongue off it. It's too it's a it's an attractive nuisance, and so all day long I'm kind of like touching this sharp mm. spot with my tongue, and it's my tongue's all all torn up what happened well i mean you have told i don't know which episode number it was where you told the story about the tooth but no hold on i take that back it is episode number 70 dr darling Mm -hmm. dr darling where uh we talk about tunnels hobos Barbecue ribs, pigs, and the story of your false tooth. So I will put episode 70 into the links for today's episode. So for people who haven't listened to that one, uh, they'll understand why you have or perhaps had a false tooth. Well, false is is a bit of a tough word. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, all three of my front teeth are are, uh, used to be capped and root canaled as a result of some some uh, uh, late 80s fracas that I got in, into mm-hmm. in college. And uh, Did that all happen at once? All Oh, yeah. It all, well, the thing is, it happened. It started a long time before I was. I was unable to keep from knocking this tooth out. Going back to when I had baby teeth, I knocked this particular tooth out as a child, falling out of the bathtub and walked around for several years until my 
adult tooth came in. Does that affect the adult tooth? Like if you prematurely lose the baby tooth, does that somehow change the way the adult tooth comes in or is that irrelevant? It doesn't matter. Uh, well, there's a lot of speculation about that because my adult tooth did come in with um, a pronounced discoloration. Interesting. And there was some suggestion that it had been damaged when the baby tooth was knocked out. There was some suggestion that I had a fever when I was a child, a high fever that would have affected its development. Um, it wasn't like – it wasn't like – small in stature it was a regular tooth that just had like a uh, it had kind of like a like a vein of minerals in it oh. um, that went it was like uh, yeah it sort of looked like a vein of gold and I was proud of it it was it was unusual it didn't look like anyone else's teeth and because I was still a kid it hadn't turned into something that anybody ever teased me about. You know, it's funny having a little child now and watching things that and, – and it may be different now that kids are discouraged from teasing each other. But you can see things that – you can see things that kids are sort of proud of that when they're 13 they might be ashamed of. Because the the temperature changes right. in terms of what a kid you know what kids uh, think is teasable or what how kids sort of uh, gang up on each other and when you're when you're seven certain things are like ha 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 look at this I have a sixth toe or I have a <laughs> oh and, and with my missing tooth the word sixth is really difficult but the other day I was saying to my daughter that she was now six and five sixths <laughs> and six is extremely hard to say with what with one missing tooth six it's a really hard thing to say even without a missing tooth it's got a lot of it's got a lot of tongue action happening can you say sixths i mean it's a hard word anyway sixths yeah, I can imagine five, if six, you took one of those teeth out of there, it would be a you disaster. Really need, you really want to put your tongue up against the back of those teeth to make well, you have to. Six, but uh, but it's tough. But yeah, I was, um, uh, you know, I, she and I sat around, and you know, if, if her ears were pointy right now, that would be a major advantage in in first grade. When your ears are pointy, it wouldn't necessarily be a big advantage when you're in ninth grade. But uh, but before I even had a chance for my special gold-veined tooth to make its debut in high school, I knocked it out again uh, in sixth grade. <laughs> so it came in, you know, whenever adult teeth come in, sometime in uh, – sometime in second grade or something like that after having sort of walked around through preschool, kindergarten and first grade, second grade without that tooth came in fairly late, I guess, uh, compared to a, a lot of kids. But then I was younger. I was young for my grade. But anyway, then I knocked it out again in, at the end of elementary school. Didn't knock it completely out, but like, uh, like whacked broke, it, loosened it yeah, or shattered it so that it had to have a cap. 
and then continued to crash into my face. But then all, like I say, the three teeth that are sort of in the front or three of the four that are in the front got really wrecked when I was 18. And then, you know, I had a lot of dental work and it all held together through my 20s and 30s where I used my teeth just really irresponsibly to open beer bottles and (laughs) Basically, you know, I would sit and like gnaw on a two by four when I was feeling anxious. Oh, come on. And then it finally broke off at the root, this tooth, on a piece of Maguro sushi backstage at a rock show in Toronto. Um, The Canadians treat their musicians very well and they bought a sushi, a thing that would never happen at an American venue. Sushi seems like soft, though. You wouldn't think that... It's the softest of all foods, Dan. But the tooth had the tooth had been mistreated and then also had spent 15 years being the primary point of contact when I would you know as a guitar player when you're up on stage singing your relationship to a microphone on a mic stand is very different if you're a, than if you're a singer that's just holding a mic in your hand. Because if you're holding a mic in your hand, you have a pretty good sense of where the mic is. But if you're playing guitar, it, the mic is just sitting there on a, on a pole. Right. And, and you're moving around and playing the guitar. And when you're really feeling it, you close your eyes. Or like things can happen to the mic stand. The, the stage can move. The crowd can move. Particularly if, you're, if, if the band is really rocking and the stage is bouncing and the, and the, the uh Audience is bouncing. The microphone can move quite a bit. And so in 15 years of playing guitar and singing, I've had the microphone crash into my face more than a handful of times. And not even like like, uh, like devastating crash, but just like small crashes where you misjudge where it is and step forward to the to where you think the mic is, but you actually kind of you know, kind of whack your face on it. Anyway, this piece of sushi was the final insult and the tooth came out. And ever since then, I've been just not really up for the whole experience of replacing it permanently. And so the the tooth is just epoxied in there. It's basically like a tic-tac is it a, I, and it's attached to the tooth next to it, sort of on either side, yeah. Right. And that's what's sharp in my mouth right now is that there's that there's an edge of epoxy that that broke when the when the glue holding it in broke on all sides, and that edge is very sharp. And I just am running my tongue along it, like, oh, look at this really fascinating, super sharp edge of glue, hard glue. And it's cutting my tongue. Anyway, so I was eating a sandwich and I had forgotten, you know, over time you just get used to having a tooth there. And it was this past time it was glued in pretty darn well. And so I had gotten so that I could eat, I could take bites of, I wouldn't sit and like chew on a carrot with it, but I would take bites into a sandwich and so forth. And uh, there was a seed in the bread and it caught just perfectly between the top and bottom teeth. And I felt the tooth crack 
Did it hurt or it was just glue releasing? Doesn't feel great. You know, the whole apparatus doesn't really feel great. But it was like, ah, but it didn't come out completely. And so when I went down to San Francisco for Sketchfest, the tooth was precarious. Mm. And I I got sick when I was down there. I had a day... uh, where I was trying to avoid throw-ups and then I had some throw-ups and the whole time I was like, and also my tooth is not really held in very well. The whole thing could come crashing down. I could, I could have throw-ups on stage and also lose my tooth and that would just be, wouldn't that be hilarious to throw up your tooth? Not I, I good. No one, not good. I hope, I hope no one's eating while listening to the show, although invariably someone will be. And, but somehow it held in, it held together through the whole week of Sketchfest. And then I came home and I made a, it was late at night. I don't know what I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I made a hot dog. I cut it in half, put it on a hamburger bun, covered it with Swiss cheese, took a bite of it. And that was the final straw. The tooth came out. I was like, uh, but I haven't called the dentist yet. It's been like four days. I don't really want to deal with it, but I mean, I have to. So one more small indignity. You know, I put it I put it on Instagram because I don't want to I don't want to walk around like concealing it and I right. don't want I don't want to You're comfortable enough to have fun with yourself, you can say, you know what, this is a thing that I have. I'm not, this is nothing I need to be embarrassed about. People have heard the story. You've talked about it openly. Have fun with it. This is the, you know what, this is the way we are when we're not 25 anymore. Things happen to you in your life. And if, you're, if your body is perfect, as you start to enter into your 50s, maybe you haven't lived at all. <laughs> and that's what your tooth says, I think. Well, when it finally broke out and when I, when I decided that I wasn't, so I, I went a couple of years without having a tooth in there, just, just missing front tooth. And, um, that was in my late thirties and I absolutely had that attitude that you're describing just like, fuck it. I guess I don't have a tooth anymore. What's the big, um, but now I don't quite feel the same way. I don't feel all those things that you just described. I am a little bit embarrassed by it just because, and uh, not because like of the, of the, the vanity of like looking like a, uh, like a, like somebody from the 19th century. You want to look your best. Well, it's, it isn't that it is. It, I'm embarrassed because what the tooth symbolizes, what the missing tooth symbolizes now is something very different than it did 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it, it symbolized all the things that you're describing. Like, well, I lived weird and hard for a long time and there are there, I have damage to almost every appendage and what can you do? You know, I don't have a ton of money either, so I can't go in and get a, get um i don't have a ton of money and i don't have insurance and and uh i am as god made me 
But now what it represents is 10 additional years of not having dealt with it. And so the embarrassment is not about how I look. It is about how I have how how this is characteristic of a thing that uh, that permeates my life which is that I kick the can down the road and have kicked the can down the road for a long time and have spent 10 years with a with a fake tooth glued in mm-hmm. um which has never been comfortable. I haven't ever bitten into a single piece of food without being somewhat conscious of the fact that I don't have a completely strong denture. And it just is like, uh, it's another kind of small, it's evidence of a small defeat. Um, that makes it a little bit, it's colored slightly differently now for me uh, that that um that it isn't it isn't as fun i guess as it will i I went to pick up my kid at school yesterday and all the the other moms were there and i said what's up fellow moms and they were like what happened to you and it was kind of like it felt somewhat like i had to teach all my songs to a new bass player again like I had to start at the start and be like, well, I've lost my tooth a long time ago and eh, this one hasn't really been, you know, just telling this story and they're, they're all elementary school moms in their thirties and they're just sitting there kind of aghast (laughs) and it's one additional piece of evidence that, that Marlo's dad is, Not, you know, not like irresponsible or unsafe, but definitely not, not, um, free of enemy. Uh, so, uh, and uh, further evidence of kicking the can down the road, I haven't actually called the dentist all week long. I'm just sitting here cutting my tongue on it and feeling like, well, I should get out there and make that call. I don't know that this is it's it it's a it's a big blinking arrow that's pointing at a kind of um a kind of I mean a, a sort of defeatism or yeah a defeatism that I have successfully for many years turned into a uh turned into an advantage by, by characterizing it not as a defeatist attitude, but as a don't give a fuck attitude. Mm-hmm. And it's a very small little gutter that you have to step over to get from one to the other. And I think, I think in my experience, a lot of the people in the world, people that I've admired, a lot of people I've known that have had what, what, seemed like a I don't give a fuck mm-hmm. mentality we're actually living in a state of like I don't think that I can or I don't think that it'll work or I don't want to deal with it or I feel like overmatched by keeping up 
And so I don't even think I can. And therefore I don't give a fuck and therefore fuck you. And it's, it's a, it, it's not quite as glorious a feeling from inside as it sometimes appears from outside. Right. Uh, and, and I think if you get, if you get, uh, real into the idea that you're, that you're a rebel, um, you can even power yourself along for a long time with the, with that. You can, you can mythologize it to yourself that, 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 that your fears of not being able to hack it are actually, um, are actually like advantageous traits of not caring what other people think. But you can't, you know, you can't lie to yourself forever at a certain point. There are definitely whole aspects of the social expectations and the mores of our peoples Mm -hmm. that don't really trouble me very much. But, there are other things that I wish I were a little bit better at and I can't forever just put all those things in the same hopper and say, I don't have a tooth cause fuck it. It's really, I don't have a tooth cause it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I don't like not having a tooth. I wish I hadn't bashed it out in 1987. I wish I hadn't broken my, knee in 1990. I wish I hadn't broken my hand in 2014. All those things are, are, I mean, you know, you can't go back, right? You can't say, you can't take those adventures away, but they were, they all were evidence of, a of a carelessness. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're not so proud of that anymore. At one point, maybe it was uh, oh, a badge was, on your chest and now you're thinking it's not? Is that what kind of what are, you're saying? Or There are all kinds of things that are badges, right? I mean, there. I have a scar in my eyebrow that's a badge of, uh, you know, a, it's a badge from Pompolona. And I have, I have, there are lots of scars on me that I think of that way. Like, yeah, that's really, a, that's something to remember that moment by or that time of my life, like, you know, like that fencing scar is symbolic, but there are other things that are just symbolic of like being a dumbass, like, like losing your knee and spending your, the rest of your life with a knee that, that never feels entirely stable especially if you're somebody like me that wants to ski and wants to jump over fences and wants to, you know, like I'm physically hale and I want to tear ass around. Mm -hmm. I still want to tear ass around. But at the age of 21, I, I, uh, I tore my knee apart and for no good reason, just as a dumbass, just because I thought that I, I was a superhero. Because I was terrassing around, but with but I was high on drugs, and so I wasn't managing expectations. I didn't have the sense that God gave a fucking puppy 
to not jump off of things that were too tall. And that type of thing where it's like, is the scar a memory? Yeah. Would I, is it a good one? I mean, you know, would I give that, uh, would I give that back in order to have the full use of my, of my leg for the last 30 years? I would, I would do. And, and I know that this knee will continue to plague me the rest of my life. There's never going to be a time. I mean, one day there will be a time when I'll probably have to get it replaced as a old person. And then I'm an old person having a knee, but you know, traumatic knee surgery and all those things that you're just like, when you're 20, you just don't look at it that way. You don't think about it. And, uh, so, so some of the, definitely there are a lot of badges of honor and I still wear them all in a form as a kind of cloak of honor that says that, that is partly defensive, right? I mean, I'm, I'm torn up and, uh, and so I have to sort of put, put it all into the same knapsack and say, this is all, this is all what I get or what I have. Right. But it, it re- there really are two separate categories, you know, there are the heartbreaks that happened because I was taking risks and I was trying, um, I was trying ventures that failed, but there are also the heartbreaks where I was just stupid or blind. And it's really hard to think of them in the same category. You have to, you, you have to lump them together, but it's, it's very different to like walk up to someone that you feel like is out of your league and ask them out and have them say no and have everyone laugh. That feels like you earned a stripe on your uniform. Right. But it's another thing to sit there week after week with someone who clearly is in love with you and you wish that you could break the silence, Mm -hmm. but can't until they finally heartbroken walk away and leave you. And then you wonder what happened. That's a different kind of star. doesn't uh, scar and it doesn't feel like a stripe on your uniform. It feels like, uh, it feels like a hole in your uniform that you can't ever mend. But, and and honestly, I have a lot more holes in my uniform than stripes. Mm. But you can't, um, that's a hard thing to, to, to wear every day and show people every day. So you have to kind of say, oh, all these holes in my uniform are from all the, the tough, cool shit I did. Instead of like, ah, no, a lot of these holes are where I wish there were medals and, or even just like the regular fabric and there, um, and it's damaged instead. And I think that's why the, the music of the long winters is not funny or, um, or political or anything else, you know, it, it doesn't have 
the music of the long winters does not reflect my whole personality. It's very, it's very specific. The, the tone of it, you know, the singing does not sound like my speaking voice and the lyrics don't encompass my whole worldview. Uh, they're, they can be wry lyrics, but they're never like there, there aren't really jokes or, or it's not lighthearted. Most of it, even the songs that are lighthearted seem lighthearted. There's a tone and a, 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 uh, a mood to everything that is really injured. And it, that was what, that was the role that music played for me, or that was what right. it, that was how it was, what it, it had utility to me to be able to sing. I could put all that stuff somewhere and not have to just sit and choke on it. And so I made those songs, but I never was able to, I never was able to turn it into a, uh, like a, I was never able to sing about the, my full world. Harvey Danger has a song called Happiness Writes White. And it's, um, I don't think that's a phrase that Sean coined, but he was describing a similar thing, which is when you sit down and try to write about happiness and when things are good, it's just, it doesn't show up on the page. The, the, the ink is, is clear because it doesn't, it's just not as indelible as when you're writing about sad or hurt. I was having a text conversation with a, a friend of mine in the United Kingdom today who is a successful English pop star and he hasn't put out a record in a while and I haven't either and we were talking about our lives and Is it Sting? It's Sting. I knew we were it. Talking I about knew our, it. We were ta- talking about our tantric lives mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh <laughs> And we were saying, you know, well, if people just realized um, how the world should how the world should be, which is to say, how we would prefer it, then there wouldn't be any there'd be no war. And, and he said, but then there, what would people write songs about? And I was like, ugh, there wouldn't be a single song. And he said, we'd be even more out of work than we are already. <laughs> But, you know, the thing that he forgot was that you couldn't be more out of work as a songwriter than I am. Pretty out of work. Our first sponsor is LinkedIn Learning, now featuring lynda.com content, the leader in online learning for the past 20 years. LinkedIn Learning is for smart people, problem solvers, people who want to make changes in their career, whether you run your own business, whether you're a freelancer, or even if you just have a side hustle, everything you need to achieve more is on LinkedIn Learning. Somebody who wants to be successful, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're working in a company, you have to be constantly learning. And LinkedIn Learning offers courses to strengthen every aspect of your business. They offer finance and accounting courses, including dozens of tutorials on QuickBooks and Excel. They teach web development and design courses, Google Analytics, the entire suite of Adobe software, marketing courses that cover everything from AdWords, content marketing, and SEO. They have courses for all experience levels, covering a huge range of technical skills. 
creative techniques, business strategies, and more. I love LinkedIn Learning. The course that I took, I've talked about it before, but it made a huge impact on me, uh, is Final Cut Pro. This application is massive, and what you can do with it is unbelievable if you know what you're doing. And it's really tough to pick up a book and really get the entire concept. It's really, really a challenge to try and find some YouTube video that's going to really teach you what you want to know. The courses that LinkedIn Learning has on this are perfect. And what's great about them, like all of their courses, is that there are project files and quizzes that help you validate your learning. Courses are structured so you can learn from start to finish or jump to a specific chapter and watch shorter bite-sized segments. You learn at your own pace. You use the method that you prefer. You watch them on the device or the computer or the tablet that you like. You can get transcripts for every video. Uh, it's all there. There's no hidden charges. They don't upsell you on anything. It's simple. You access all the courses you want, all for one monthly price. It's available worldwide. And uh, there's a special deal. You get 30-day free trial with LinkedIn Learning if you go to this special URL. The URL is linkedin.com slash road. That's it. LinkedIn.com slash road, all lowercase. We'll get credit for sending you over there. You'll get to learn something awesome. 30 days, you access their entire library. Pretty cool. So thanks very much to LinkedIn Learning for making this episode possible. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to have t- turned a corner into something, uh, into expressing feelings that are dire because I I I don't feel dire especially, but this is all a component of the of the bugbear that lurks around the periphery of everything I do, and. Uh, and the thing that differentiates me from a salesman who feels like everything's great all the time, even when his house is on fire. But suffice to say, until I can get to a dentist, until I can make an appointment with a dentist, I am I have returned to a state which, just by its very nature, is shocking to a normal like I haven't seen my neighbors since it happened but when I run into them in the street and they say hey how's it going and I go great I mean when you make the word great your mouth when you say the word great your mouth like opens up and they're going to go what happened right and it's you know you want to say like oh I got hit in the face with a hammer as I was trying to rescue five kids from a murderer (laughs) right then it's okay. Yeah. But if you start with like, oh, there was this piece of sushi in Toronto. Like, where do you start? Well, yeah. It's funny. You ask. <laughs> and I've had a couple of friends 
say like, you know, back when you had really long hair and were missing that tooth, that was my favorite phase of you. That was my favorite era. Right, like people can like that about you because like if it's not happening to you, it seems kind of cool. You well, know, like, I mean, like I mean, Evil Knievel doing some kind of crazy jump yeah. and like breaking all the bones in his body and then like, you know, you're like, yeah, that, that's kind of cool. Like he's a badass. He's cool. But in reality, like that's kind of awful that it happened to him and he like had to live with the healing and the never being right again part of it. And I think people look at you and they're like, yeah, he's kind of a badass, John Roderick. Well, you know, Evil Knievel did it over and over and knowing full well what was going to happen. I mean, he did it to himself. That was his job, his career. And he didn't. Evil Knievel is a perfect example of a guy who actually didn't give a fuck. Right. Um, and when he finally was, when he finally retired from jumping and was walking around with 400 pins in his body, um, I'm sure that he he had to think about it every minute of every day. But also, if Evil Knievel had not crashed famously crashed um he would have ended up i mean he evil knievel was a very ambitious young guy who was on a collision course with being a like a flop you know a guy a guy who tried a million things and failed at them all until he figured out this jumping Harley Davidson's thing. And I think that the, the thing that initially got attention to him was some spectacular crash. And from then on, he was, you know, he was a, a hero to us all in the 1970s. So I don't know how he, he, he can't look back at those crashes and say, I wish they'd never happened. I'm sure he relived a lot of them. and was like, Oh, jumping that Caesar's palace fountain. I wish I'd zigged when I, <laughs> You know, <laughs> right? And zigged instead of zagged. But you know that was his. That was the way he chose to live. And and um, you know the the uh, the people that live fast and die young. You have to. Well, I mean, they die, so they're they're not standing around wondering what happened. Mm -hmm. They're already gone. Like, I don't know if you saw it. Somebody posted a picture of the traveling Wilburys and they had done us all the great service, which is to say not at all done us a service by writing their ages under their picture. Uh, when the traveling Wilburys record came out, because you know, those guys, when that record came out, they were all old, right? Sixties rock musicians who, Mm -hmm. We're, we're making a, like a last stab at the, I, um, I see the picture you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and at, you know, at the time it was just like, well, Dylan looks like a raisin and, and, uh, they couldn't be, <laughs> they couldn't be any older to, to my, to my, uh, 20 year old vision. Okay, yes. But, yes. Neil, uh, tell me if this is right. Neil Brennan posted this and he says, was talking with a friend about how impossibly old the traveling Wilbury seemed when they released their music in 1988. I've listed their ages at the time for some perspective. Three of them are no longer alive. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Yeah. And this was just posted two days ago. And, um, 
Yeah, they're yeah. like, uh, you know, between, well, Tom Petty's the child of the group at 37. 37. Uh, and I think, um, I'll put this and I'll put this link in the show notes too, but yeah. Well, yeah. so what, what, you know, what happened during the Wilburys run, which was, which was abbreviated, um, I mean, Roy Orbison died. And well, he was 52 in this picture in 1988. He was, he was 52. Uh-huh. Um, and he died. And I remember at the time thinking like, well, he died young, but he'd lived a full life. He was an old dude. I mean, you know, he'd. 52. It's old. Yeah. How he old was, was he when the, he died? 54? I don't think he was much older than 52. Mm. Um. You know, he was a guy that had, had success in the 1950s. Like this was this was the 1980s. He'd lived he'd lived a long life, but 52. Yeah, is 52. How old, that's how old he was when he died. Yeah, that's how old Merlin Mann is. I know. And um, and everybody else in that picture. I mean, George Harrison was 45, mm-hmm. and he'd already had not only the Beatles, but also the entire 1970s and the entire 1980s. I mean, he'd had 20 years since his, since the years that had made him famous. Think about all the things that Bob Dylan had been through from 1960 to 1988. Wow. Um, and this was kind of, I mean, if not there, I mean, it certainly wasn't Tom Petty's swan song. He was just getting started, but a lot of these guys, um, didn't do a whole lot of stuff more interesting after that. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many George Harrison tunes or Bob Dylan tunes have that have come out in the last 20 years have been, I mean, they've been interesting, right? But they haven't really troubled the top of the pop charts, but all by way of saying like, There, there, there is a different, there is a different tenor to these life events that comes on, that comes on you at this age. It's a weird thing that you that you hear about your whole life. You hear about when you're young from older people, and you cannot understand it. You can't know it. You hear, yeah, and I mean, I, I still have trouble understanding it when someone who's 85 says I still feel young it's just my body that's old right and you go oh isn't that cute the old person says he still feels young isn't that cute but how frustrating to in your mind be still 100% ready to right. get out and tear ass around um, it's, it's, uh, and it's, it all feels very trite, right? It's a, the, this happens to us all, but it, uh, it happens to us all and it's not, I mean, ob- obviously our, our culture for at least the second half of the 20th century to the present day doesn't put a lot of premium on getting old. It's not like, it's not like it may have once been, although I don't know how, I don't know if any of us can, can know exactly how it once was, but 
but to be in to be in middle age isn't where the locus of the cultural moment lies right and um you know the the natural tendency of youth to think that you are fully fledged contrasted with the natural tendency of a middle-aged person to feel like, no, in fact, it is you who are fully fledged and that the 24 year old has no idea. <laughs> um, that just like intrinsic baked in competition where the young person feels like the middle-aged person is standing between them and what they want. Right, are, right, right, right. Um, because we're up here somewhere in, in the age column hogging all the resources and hogging all the opportunity. And we're here in that, in that column saying, yeah, the reason that we're here is that we know how to do things. And if we turned it over to you, 20 year olds, you would fuck everything up in a heartbeat because you don't know anything yet. And that, you know, that push and pull, and I think it, I think it's one of the reasons that I tease the baby boomers so hard. I mean, they were a big generation that was very dynamic and, uh, and kinetic and they did take for themselves a lot of authority, a lot of cultural authority before they had any good sense. And they did do a lot of interesting things, but they also did a lot of permanent damage. And partly that damage was a, was a factor of them feeling like they were ready before they were and then never ever really learning how to grow up like normal people. And Generation X, our small, unfortunate, bruised apple of a generation, wise before our years because nobody cared about us. You know, we all feel like wizened and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and trying to still trying to push, push us a little space in the avalanche for ourselves to have a pocket of air to breathe. And then this generation coming behind us, which is also large and dynamic and setting a, a setting the cultural tone in a way that again, kind of suggests that, that we are kind of lumped in with the generation before us or, you know, we're just in that category of like old people that don't know how things work. Old, old people that have bad, bad old ideas that, and a new broom sweeps clean. And I can't argue with them because my knee fucking clicks and clacks when the weather changes. Yeah. Like might as well, I might as well have a, I might as well be wearing a back brace. For Christ's sake, uh, I, I, Dan, I just got an electric bed. I, I saw you. A, this is a, a sign of the of the times, isn't it? Well, no, I think it's a sign of prosperity. But then I look at it at a distance, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I think it's a sign of prosperity because I'm an old. In fact, it's a in fact it's a hospital bed for all <laughs> intents and purposes. And I mean, it's not like I need it to get out of bed or something. It's <laughs> right. just like, oh, this is great. If I just raise it up here, I can sit in bed and read my Reader's Digests all afternoon. So it's, you know, I think even a few years ago, I would have 
And even now, I got this electric bed as a novelty, and I really enjoy it because it is very comfortable. And um, I showed it to Ken Jennings, and he showed it to his wife, and now she's demanding that he get one. And it's the it's the arms race of uh, the arms race of electric comfort. I think part of my mood is that I'm. I'm still not sleeping very well. I went to sleep last night at 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. because I knew I had to get up at 6 in the morning today. And I was like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go to sleep at 10. I know that in the middle of the night I'm going to wake up because it always happens when I go to bed at a reasonable time. But I'm just going to lay there and go and force myself to go back to sleep. So I went to bed at 10. I was so tired. I was just like, oh, thank God I'm in bed. The lights are off. I'm just I'm just going to sleep. And I did. And at 1220, I popped back awake and I said, I knew this was going to happen and I'm just going to roll back over and I'm going to put my head under the pillow and I'm going to go to sleep, Right. go back to sleep. And I spent an hour laying there more and more awake with every moment, foot bouncing my mind occupied with all the sort of terrible fantasies that intrude in moments like that where yeah. I don't have, I don't have any govern, no night, nightmarish, nightmarish. Well, I'm always the agent of the terribleness in those, in those kind of fantasies. So that's not the nightmare isn't upon me. The nightmare is me delivering vengeance upon all the, I mean, this is where I devised my whole plan to bury shipping containers in the desert to create a psychedelic nightmares, psychedelic nightmare compound for Donald Rumsfeld. (laughs) I, I, I lay, I lay in bed at night and, and, you know, and try and work my way through scenarios, right? The, the classic scenarios I work are the, um, no country for old men scenario. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, let's say you suddenly come upon um, five million dollars that is part of a drug transaction gone wrong, and you have the money, and you need to both keep from be keep from becoming known at, by the cartel as the person who has the money, so you don't incur their vengeance. But also, how do you launder five million dollars? And I'll lay in bed. Hours at a time running scenarios like, okay, well, what if I did, what if I put it here and did that, you know, because I want to launder the 5 million without losing 60% of it. Right. To some yeah, mafia. No, that's important. Launder. Yeah. Keep, or, keep what's yours. Yeah. Or like perfect crime scenarios. Like how do I commit a perfect crime? How do I, let's, I'm sure that right now somewhere there is someone who is getting on an airplane with a briefcase full of diamonds that they're taking from one place to the other. Then they're counting on the fact that the, their, their primary security is that nobody knows there's a briefcase full of diamonds. Um, but if you did know there, that they were carrying a briefcase of diamonds, first of all, how would you, how would you learn that? How would you learn who among us was carrying a briefcase full of diamonds? And then how would you separate them from the diamonds without the use of violence? How do you get that briefcase full of diamonds from them? And then there's that Alec Baldwin um, 
movie where it was it was definitely like a B movie from the nineties where um who, who was Alec Baldwin's wife in the nineties? I'm sorry, I'm spacing her name. Uh I'd have to look that up. What happens in the movie? Well, she has a brief or a suitcase full of ill-gotten gains and she's at the train station waiting for Alec Baldwin to arrive and they're going to escape together. And just some random guy comes along. and was like, Oh, let me help you. Know, she's going to put the suitcase into a storage locker. And he's like, Oh, let me help you put it, put, you know, put it in there. And it's, it's, it seems like a very random moment in the film where just a Samaritan is helping her put her. Wasn't her, he married to Kim Basinger? That's it. That's it. It's Kim Basinger okay. is the actress in the film. I'm looking it up. And, yes. Okay. Yes. He was. He was in fact married to her. Yeah. They were. And, uh, they played lovers in the film 1991 film The Marrying Man. Nope. That's not it. Uh, then he was in Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. Prelude to a Kiss with Meg Ryan. Nope. Uh, the only movie that it's show, showing that he was in with her uh, was in The Marrying Man. The Marrying Man. The Marrying Man. And it says, uh, an American 1991 romantic comedy film. No, that's not it at all. Is it, let's see. um, hmm. It uh, it, uh, Basinger uh, won a Golden Raspberry Award nomination for the worst actress. Who is? In that movie. Who is the actor who played... um, uh, the bad guy in Reservoir Dogs. I mean, they're all bad guys, but the one that like was torturing the cop. Oh, um, um, yeah. Which one was that? It's been a while. That was Mr. Blonde. I remember that, but mm-hmm. um, Mr. Blonde. Yeah. I have to look. In Reservoir Dogs is um, Mr. Blonde. Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen. Yeah. Okay. Now, this movie that I'm thinking of had Michael Madsen. Uh-huh. And it had uh, the woman who played the much younger girlfriend of the, uh, well, the much younger girlfriend in The Big Chill. Okay. Was this, what time, what year would this have been in? Well, sometime in the 90s. Early 90s? Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is, again, uh, young people who are listening to the show, this is one of the things that happens when you become a, a terrible, terrible, terrible old person who should be run. It's Meg Tilly. Meg okay. Tilly. So oh this movie God. had Meg Michael <laughs> Madsen and Meg <laughs> Tilly in it. I swear Kim Bassinger. Okay, so it's The, the Getaway. getaway. <laughs> and now... Yeah. And the reason I don't remember this is that the getaway, yeah, that. Was, getaway was a bad movie. It was a remake of, uh, of I think it was one of those movies that was a remake of like six movies. The original one was, oh, it's yeah, it's Alec Baldwin and Kim Bassinger. Yeah, that and it that, yes, it is. Why did this not show up? I don't in know your why. List? It was I was looking at what I thought was a definitive list of Alec Baldwin movies. <laughs> this one oh. didn't even wasn't even on there. It's not uh, the, the the thing about this movie. Let me let me tell you if you haven't seen it. It's one of those B movies that is really 
full of awfulness. James Woods is in it too. Again, he's awful. Um, <laughs> there's just so much awfulness in this movie, and and it's and it's well done. It looks um, horrible. It does look horrible, but it's actually well done, and it's a movie that. So, in 1990, in the spring of 1995, was it 19? No, 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 I'm sorry. In this, yeah, the spring of 1995, I was in Europe. Uh, for several months with my sister and my mother. She had just retired and I had just gotten sober. And during the last several years of my using drugs and drinking, I was estranged from my family. I didn't talk to my mom or dad uh, because I didn't want to be one of those adult drug addict children who was always asking their mom for money. I didn't want to be, I just, I figured like I was awful and I should just go be awful. Now I can't imagine it from their perspective. It probably was worse to not hear from me than it would have been to hear from me. And the way that my mom is, she wouldn't have, I don't think continued to give me money to support my drug habit. Uh, so when I sobered up, it was, I mean, she, she retired from her job right around the same time. And she said, you know, I want to reestablish a relationship and I'm retired and I want to go to Europe. And, uh, you know, and I had been to Europe at that point and had, had vagabonded around for half a year. And she said, I want you to go with me and I'll bring Susan too. And the three of us will just sort of open-endedly go to Europe and just sort of wander around together as a family. And, you know, we didn't have like all the money in the world. We were staying the three of us in little apartments. It was before Airbnb, obviously, but, but we would rent little, little apartments and and uh, stay in a place for a while. We'd go to Marseille for a week and just kind of wander around. And my mom and I both enjoyed sitting in cafes, drinking espresso from little demitasse cups and reading the International Herald Tribune all afternoon while Susan wandered around looking for discos. She, she did not like going to museums. She wanted to go to clubs. I did not want to go to clubs. I'd been sober for four months at this point. The last thing I wanted to do was go to a, a club. And my mom wanted to go to bed at eight in the morning. She would wake up at like four thirty in the morning and go out and wander the town by herself watching it wake up, which is her favorite thing. And then I would wake up and we'd go get coffee. Anyway, we had this whole routine. We really had a good time. Eventually, you know, we went to Greece and Poland and, and, traveled all around together. But at one point we were on a train in Italy and Susan's very social and she struck up a conversation with these people who kind of, uh, that we met in the hall and she was like, why don't you come sit in our, uh, in our cabin and 
and they were they were oh I should say they were like very beautiful, and there were a couple of Americans within in the group, and they were like we're models, and we're all going to Milan for the big model. This is the modeling season, and I was very intimidated by models. Mm-hmm. Um, I was twenty. What was I? Twenty six and had not really had very much success romantically felt very much intimidated by beautiful people. I had a, a low self-esteem about my own attractiveness felt like uh, that, that my, I felt that my aloneness was more a product of my unattractiveness than it was a product of my disagreeableness, which is actually what it was. What was the reason I was alone or I had, I was, a, I failed at romantic relationships because I was insecure and, and awful. Um, but I, but I attributed it to the fact that I didn't, that I was, um, hideous. And I think that's very common in people in their twenties to have a kind of dysmorphia about their appearance. So we're on this train and we're with these models and they're not, uh, I should say they're not girl models, they're boy models. And it's 1995. And so the boy models at the time all had kind of cool, long grunge hair (laughs) and they were wearing that. What now seems like a crazy style. It's actually back in style now as a form of norm core, which is like baggy waist high jeans like jeans that are pulled up high but but roomy and i forget what how they were sold at the time but like roomy jeans um what was levi's had a tag for them some kind of name for them like like relaxed jeans no it was before the idea of them being relaxed it was like these were these were loose loose fit loose fit something like that And so everybody sort of looked like they were, they were on Seinfeld. I mean, it was, uh, they were all very handsome and I just felt like, and if I had seen them by myself on this train, I would have avoided them. But my sister has no fear and no shame. And she was like, let's hang out. And they were excited, you know, excited to see some Americans. And so they all tumble into our train car and we ride through the, the North of Italy laughing and joking and I found them all dumb and dull but that's the disagreeableness I'm talking about that kept me from having fun and eventually they said we're going to Milan and we're having we're doing model modeling stuff for the men's collection the men's fall collection or something why don't you come with us and we were traveling with no itinerary. So Susan said to my mom, well, you want to go to Milan? And my mom said, sure, I'll go to Milan. And so, uh, and I, there were lots of things I wanted to see in Milan. So I was like, sure, I'll go to Milan. But anyway, we ended up (laughs) hanging out with these models, these male models. And I made no connection with them, but I was introduced to this idea that with that in Milan, in the modeling scene, and I think it's not exclusive to Milan, there are parties at clubs 
which models are invited to. And the fact that there are models at the, at the club is a selling point to normals. And if the club can say, we have a bunch of verified bona fide models at the club, uh, then normals will pay a high cover charge to go in with the, with the prospect of socializing with models. And what happens, at least in my limited experience in Milan, is that the club opens early, and at first it's only models allowed. Mm. And the models all go into the club and they, they party with each other, which is, which is meant to create in the normals who are waiting outside a sense that the models are having some bacchanalia in there. And so all the people lined up outside all are salivating because the models are all in there modeling and sexing. And then they open the doors to regulars, at which point the models all retreat behind a velvet rope to a VIP area, which is models only. Although I think if you pay a lot of money or more money, you can go through the velvet rope. I mean, the models are visible to everyone in the club. And you can go through that if you pay. And the rest of the normals just are out on the dance floor standing at the bar. Right. And the models are in this slightly elevated and separate section where they continue to be exclusive and party. And everyone has to just like chew their cud and watch them up there. But they, again, get to feel like they're at a, they're at an exclusive event. You're at the same place as the models technically. Right. It's all terrible, but the models, our models said, you can come with us. We'll go to the modeling party before the club opens and hang out. And so for a few days we went, to these clubs with the models. And again, this is like, I mean, for partying pretty early in the evening because they're establishing this kind of, uh, this isn't like four o'clock in the morning. This is <laughs> right after dinner. Yeah. Well, so we go in to the clubs and the models are surprisingly innocent, sort of sweet, childlike people. And partly it's that they are young. They're actually children. And they're away from home for the first time. And they're in this foreign place. And all they want is just to... And the only people that they know or aren't being preyed upon by are other young models. And so they're in this club. And it feels like you're at a like a, like a church mixer. They're not really drinking. And, and it's like, uh, it's so freaking innocent that I couldn't believe it. And the first thing that shocked me was that we would show up at the door of these clubs in this group of models. And my sister and I are not models by any stretch of the imagination, but she was young and, and cute. And I was myself (laughs) and the security people and all the other models did not blink an eye at us. Mm -hmm. Right. We weren't the uglies. 
we just looked like a we just looked like models because models aren't really that different. I was not a hideous monster as I thought. I was at the model party and I'm standing there uncomfortable and feeling like everybody was going to be looking at me as like, how did he get in here? But in fact, it was just like, hey, what's up? What campaign are you working on? So that was the first shocker. But then the second shocker was at these model parties before they let the normals in, they would show a movie and all the models would just sit on the dance floor cross-legged with popcorn and watch um, an American movie. That's weird. Not a sex time, not a drinking drug time, not they, it was just like, it was like, uh, it was fun time. And they knew that what was coming was that they were going to have to stand around in this club all evening looking like they were raging and having a lot of fun. But what they did in the, in the two hours where they were supposed to be having an exclusive party, driving people outside insane was to watch a movie. And one of the nights, the movie that they showed was the getaway with Alec Baldwin and Kim Bassinger. And I had not heard of it and was so had not seen anything about it. And I think Alec Baldwin and Kim Bassinger were already known to me. Partly Red October and partly Kim Bassinger was famous nine and a half weeks, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and obviously James Woods was known. Um, so it felt like, oh, this is a major motion picture. And it comes on and the movie is so fucked up. <laughs> and it's showing, oh, and here we are like sitting cross-legged on the dance floor with all these models and scene after scene, something would happen where everyone in the room would go <gasps> like, like scandalized and appalled and, and horrified. Uh, there's like three or four, three or four moments in the film where you just, at least in my case, and you know, I, I had only been sober a few months. I was fresh out of a life that had seen its share of, of gross and weird. Um, and some of the scenes in this movie have stuck with me my whole life. Just like, uh, in the, in a way of in, in this, in the sense of like documenting the evil that people are capable of the emotional, like carelessness that people can inflict upon one another and done in the style of like a, like a dark noir crime thing. There's nothing funny about it. Anyway, we, the, the lights come up at the end of this movie and the last thing any one in the room wants to do is pretend to be like sexy and fun. And we're all herded behind the velvet rope where we stand around. Most of us drinking Shirley temples while the room fills up with, uh, you know, carnivorous middle-aged Italian men who are like lasciviously undressing everybody with their eyes (laughs) and we're just kind of standing up there like doing that that weird model dance where you're just sort of arrhythmically stepping from side to side looking super duper bored and 
it caused me to realize that, that bored, disaffected, glazed-eyed model look where you're just kind of like posing and you look really um, super above it all is in actual fact real boredom. That <laughs> is a result of being too young to have interesting thoughts and more or less forced to be in this situation and conscious of a bunch of people staring at you. There's nothing more interesting about it, right? They're, the models are not thinking, oh, I wish I was doing cocaine and eating diamonds with my, you know, with my boyfriend, the prince of, of, uh, of like the whatever, the prince of Alpha Centauri. They're just sitting there like, <laughs> wow, that movie we just saw was really fucked up and I'm living in a dormitory with a bunch of other corn-fed models and this isn't what I, <laughs> this isn't what I thought life was going to be. Anyway, so that movie, that movie worked a number on me and I think it influenced my fantasies in a big way where I lay in bed at night and, and run crimes perpetrate schemes and so often you know when the scheme that I'm perpetrating is like how would I if I wanted to murder somebody and get away with it what exactly would I do how would I make it look like a suicide how would I make it look like it was committed by a serial killer and not me or what would I say to the cops when they showed up at my house and said, where were you the night of the 13th? Like all that kind of play, play out the scenario that you see in TV shows and crime movies. But if you had actually done the crime, because there are situations where people get away with murder and there are situations in life where you, you know, as Perry Farrell says, some people should die. But last night I popped awake at 1230 in the morning and I lay in bed for an hour perpetrating crimes. And at 1.30, it was clear I was not going back to sleep. And so I woke up and now I had an electric bed and I turned it on and it raised me to a somewhat sitting position. I turned the light on and I lay there reading until four in the morning. And I still had to get up at six. That part didn't change. So I got up at six with four hours of sleep. Less. Between three and four hours of sleep. And I was like, here I am again. I don't know where, I don't know how I get here. Mm -hmm. I tried, I tried so diligently to go to sleep at a good hour. And, um, and it, it just isn't that easy. You have to, to sleep well, you have to, Make it a practice. And so now I'm talking to you and I do feel a little bit morbid. And I think it may be a product of the fact that there's a morbidity to not getting enough rest. Damn right. You just start to be, you start to think about your broken knee and you start to think about. Yeah, you will. If you, if you miss enough sleep for enough nights, at least you know, when, when you're in, I think thirties and beyond mm-hmm. think in your twenties, it seems okay. It was great. Kidding me. Yeah. 
But then in thirties, forties, especially, I think something is just different and you miss a couple, two, three nights in a row of getting good sleep for whatever the reason is. And you just, I don't know about, I mean, it sounds like you're saying the same thing. You just, it's not like depressed exactly, but it's just, you start thinking of like, nothing means anything and it just gets real dark. Yeah. And then one, one good night's sleep. But see, I don't know about you, but I can't do the thing where I just like, I know people and I've always been envious of people who are like, well, need to get up early tomorrow. So I'll just go to bed two or three hours early tonight. Get get some good sleep and be refreshing them. I'll go to bed early. That for me, there is no going to bed early. Like I go to bed at the same time. I, 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 that I, like if I go out or do something where I'm out late, I will not sleep in. Even if I want to sleep in, I will wake up at the same time that I wake up every morning and if I try really hard, I might get lucky and be able to allow myself, some force myself to sleep later. But if I'm out, if I usually go to bed at 11, 11 30, and for some reason I'm out until one doing something and get back out and go to bed till one, like I'll still wake up at 6 30 the next morning because that's when I have to wake up to get my kids to school. So I'll mm-hmm. still wake up at 6 30. I just will have had five hours of sleep instead of seven hours of sleep. And, and if I, like I had to go to San Francisco earlier in the week, Monday. And so Sunday night, like if I had laid down at 10 o'clock or nine o'clock, I wouldn't have gone to sleep. I would have fallen asleep at 1130 because that's when I fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in San Francisco adjusting, you know, for the, I was going to be there for three nights. So I kind of pushed myself to go to bed a little bit later so that I could function with the people that I was meeting with and doing things with and stayed out later and wound up going to bed, I don't know, you know, 11 San Francisco time, one my time. Well, still waking up at 4.30, which is 6.30 my time. That's when <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to be up then. <laughs> We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. You can do a lot with Squarespace. Here's some examples. You can uh, create a beautiful website that'll let you turn your cool idea into a business. You can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content. You can sell products. You can sell services. You can promote your physical business or your online business. You can announce an upcoming event. Maybe it's a wedding. Maybe it's a birth of your new little baby. Maybe it's a special project. Tons of stuff. And Squarespace makes this possible with beautiful templates created by world-class designers, powerful e-commerce functionality so you can sell anything online, the ability to customize the look and feel, the settings, the products, and more with just a few clicks. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. And they even have a new way to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 extensions. It's all built in. Oh, and you can get a domain even if you don't sign up for a Squarespace website. They've got analytics to help you grow, built-in SEO, Uh, 24-7 award-winning customer support. Make it yourself. You know what I'm saying? Don't hire someone to do it. Make it yourself. Make it stand out with a beautiful website. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to do something cool and use the offer code ROADWORK and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Squarespace.com, promo code ROADWORK. John, I just envy those people who are like, well, just went to bed early. 
Well, were you? Did you have the flu? Nope, just went to bed early. Like I, lo- I, I wish I could do that. I want to do I, that. I think that they are living much more regulated lives, and that's the that's the trade. You know, I mean, my life is almost completely unregulated, with the exception of every day now. There's a thing that I have to do, and that wasn't yeah. always the case. Yeah. But now there's a thing that I have to do, but generally that thing doesn't start until ten. And it ends by noon. And then there's an obligation I have in the evening. Uh, either I'm picking up my kid or I'm going to have dinner with her because someone else picked her up or, you know, there's a child in in my life. So every day I try to spend as much time as I can with her when she's not at school or in her after school programs. But otherwise, there's still a total lack of governance. And I think compared to people who live a very governed life where they have dinner at the same time every night, for instance. Right. Yes. Which means that they start cooking dinner more or less at the same time every night. But are you saying that you can lay down at two hours, three hours before your normal bedtime and fall asleep? Uh, I think that there, I think probably, well, who knows what it's like to be one of those people, but I think that, the difference is that they don't pop up awake at two in the morning because their body is used to being awake at two in the morning. Right. Um, so if they are able to lay down and go to sleep, if they're tired or something and, and manage to make it, a, make it asleep, their body is, is prepared to do it and, and sleep through the night. I mean, uh, Jonathan Colton says all the time that no matter what happens, no matter how late he stays up, he wakes up at the same time in the morning. That's me. That's just, same. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I think that's kind of a gift because you have the morning, whereas I, living an ungoverned, mm-hmm. if I don't have a reason to get up, I absolutely can sleep till noon. There's, there's nothing that will, there's, I'm an expert at rolling back over, pulling the pillow over my head and going back to sleep for two more hours. Now, this morning I did go back to sleep. And what's funny is I had things to do between the hours of seven and noon. I had various things to do and I've described this before, but today was today. I was watching it pretty carefully. I woke up at exactly the time that I needed to, you know, I had a phone call at nine and I woke up out of a dead sleep at 8.58. And then I went back to sleep at 9.30. And I woke up on the dot at 11 a.m. And I was supposed to meet you at 11. And I texted you and said, how about 11.30? Or no, no, no. You texted me and said, I'm running a little bit late. And I said, okay, well, how about 11.30? And you were like, fine. And then I went back to sleep fully asleep and I woke up at 11:29 and at which point I said to you what about noon and you were like fine and I went back to sleep and woke up at 11:59 now I don't know how I do that um it's a it amazes me it is amazing and I'm not sure if it was a situation where I was catching an airplane, whether it would work 
the same way, but I, but in fact it does. In fact, I do wake up. And last night, even though I went to sleep at 4.15, I knew I had to be awake at 6, and I woke up at 5.58. That's amazing. And was like, oh, tell me it's not 6 a.m. And I went and looked at it, and it was like, oh, 6 a.m. All right, well. So whatever that is beats the heck out of me how the heck I can lay down and say, and I'm, I don't even like say it consciously. I'm not like, okay, wake up. I just say, oh, Jesus, I'm only going to get two hours of sleep. That sucks. And I lay down and then. So, I mean, I guess that's an advantage. Because in order to wake up at that hour, at that amount of time, my body has to start putting itself into a wake up mode in advance. I don't just. It's not like I wake up to a to an alarm. I wake up by my own method. Finally, right before I did wake up to come down and do this show with you, I actually woke up to a bell, which was super eerie. What kind of bell? Like uh, well, the Merlin lying. bell or? No, I was lying in bed and I heard this like, bong. Meditation style bell? Yeah. And I I woke up with my eyes open. It, 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 it sounded like it came from my closet. And I was like, what kind of thing? Because this does not sound like a horror. <laughs> it was such a pleasing <laughs> bell. <laughs> I was like, am I haunted? Is there an UFO in my closet? But it's really a nice Buddhist UFO? Or like some kind of, am I being, is my house haunted by a ghost that's very chill? And it's just like, <laughs> bong, wake up. It's so much better than creaking doors or, yeah. or, or, uh, or like drawers that won't stay closed or, Ghostly apparitions, just like, oh, wow, from now on, there's going to be like a bell that rings in my closet. And then I realized that what it was was the guy with the dump truck and the backhoe had dropped some piece of metal in the course of unhooking the backhoe. And it out in the street, it rang out like a beautiful chime. Wow. And then perfect, perfect timing. Just like, boom. I thought, maybe that's a thing. Maybe there's some kind of, you know, you can have your phone do like ding, which sucks. Any sound your phone makes sucks. But what if I found a way to like wake up to a gong from the closet? 